Scripture is Acts, the 16th chapter. About midnight, Paul and Silas were singing hymns and praying to God while the other prisoners were listening. Then there was an earthquake of such violence that the foundations of the prison were shaken and all the prison doors were opened and all the chains came loose. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, believing that all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, do not harm yourself. We are all still here. The jailer called for the lights and came in and fell before Paul and Silas trembling. Then he brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe on the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. The game was called Basileia. It was the Greek word for king. And it was played primarily by Roman legions on the eastern front. Uh, the front that was often uh, dangerous, uh, desolate full of despair in places like Israel when they were stationed there. And the game went something like this. They had a, uh, a chart they would carve into the ground, and it was uh, divided like a, a pie, piece of pie. And there were different symbols on different parts of the chart. And so at the start of the day, soldiers would roll the die, and whoever landed on the king would be the king for a day, and they would give him a crown, and they would give him a robe and a scepter, but it wasn't a good thing. Because the rest of that day, the other soldiers would gamble. They would roll the dice. They would roll for all of his possessions, for his clothes, for his house, and if they ever got back home, for his wife. And at the end of the day, they would roll one more time. And whichever soldiers die landed on the picture of the scorpion, he received the honor of killing the king for that day. Caesar was so horrified by this practice of the Roman legions in the east that he finally outlawed it. But it's likely that some of this, even after it was outlawed, continued. Only it continued with prisoners, prisoners like Jesus. So one of the things that happens on Good Friday is Jesus becomes a king for a day. And he gets a crown and a scepter and a robe. And they roll for his clothes and possessions. When I learned about that game, I thought, why on earth would anyone play that? Why on earth? What kind of situation? How bored do you have to be? Or how despairing do you have to be to engage in this form of Russian roulette? How much do you look for a way out? How despairing are you if you would enter into a game like that? I don't know how bad things were on the front, but I know things were certainly bad for the jailer in Philippi after the earthquake. He was looking for a way out because... The way that the Roman system worked was the jailer was responsible for all of the prisoners. And you could take them to your house or you could take them wherever you wanted as long as when it was time you presented them in the court for their hearing. And if you could not present the prisoner, then your life was taken in exchange for the prisoner. So when the earthquake hit and the prison doors were open, the jailer knew he needed a way out. He knew that it was all over for him. And so he drew his sword. And not knowing of any other way out, got ready to take his own life. But we're told that Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're still all here. And when the lights came up, he came before Paul and Silas and asked that great question, what must I do to be saved? 
It's a question that people have been asking for centuries and would ask uh, centuries past that even on to today. Though it's hard to know exactly what the jailer meant by his question. He simply could have been asking, what do I have to do to keep you from running away so I won't get killed? That's possible. But I tend to agree with what Audrey said to the children. I think it's more that the jailer had listened to Paul praying and singing hymns, even though he was the one in shackles. I think the jailer had watched as everyone had an opportunity to escape, and Paul did not take advantage of it. I think the jailer put things together and realized that really Paul was more free than he was. That he was imprisoned by this Roman code, by this system of justice. But Paul was truly free enough to not act out of fear of imprisonment or fear of death. And so I think his question to Paul, what must I do to be saved, is really this. How can I be like you? What do I have to do to to find the peace and the joy and the freedom that you seem to have? If that's so, then I would suggest to you that salvation, whatever else it is, is at a very basic level freedom. Now, we'll talk a lot about salvation the next three Sundays, and and Donna will bring up even more next week. But for our purposes today, let's think about salvation as freedom. Freedom from some of the things that imprison us. Now, I've lived long enough with myself, and I've been with other people that I've learned some of the things that imprison us in life. And they're not physical bars. They're not physical jail cells. And they're not imposed on us from the outside. But they're just as real and they seem to come from inside of us. I've watched people, including myself, uh, engage in amazing feats of risk avoidance just so they could hope to to prolong their life for a few more days, weeks, months, years. I've seen people live and act out of the fear of death. I've seen them make decisions that are more cautious than they need to make. I see them put pillows on the floor so should they fall, they won't hit the ground all the way. I've seen them worry more about dying than about living. And I think part of that is because they're imprisoned by the fear of death. But I've also seen in my own life that sometimes the bigger fear is not the fear of death, but it's the fear of living. It's the fear of living and finding out why you live that you're not really accepted, that you're not really valued, that you're not really loved. And sometimes I think this starts very early. Early on, we look for love and acceptance, and and if we don't find it, then we begin to go down other avenues that our fear leads us into, and, and we get far away from God and from the love of God. There was an interesting survey done a few years ago, and this was done of atheists, self-identified atheists. And what they found among the atheists who responded to the survey was 99% of them admitted they had terrible relationships with their fathers, with their earthly fathers. And their response, it seems to me, if I'm reading it appropriately, is uh, they look for a way out. When they're imprisoned and they don't find that acceptance, they just went another way. And their way was they would not only leave their fathers, but they would leave the Heavenly Father behind as well. And they tried to make their own way out. And they went another way. And people do that. An interesting uh, study was done more than 20 years ago by Harvard psychiatrist Stephen Berglis. And in this book, the published called The Success Syndrome, he talked about studying these very high achievers, captains of industry in all sorts of fields. And what he found they had in common amazed him. What they had in common is he found most all of them were running from some sort of deep inner wound in their life. 
And they thought if they could accomplish enough things in life, it would cover up from the basic feeling that they just weren't wanted or accepted or valued. And in it, he retold a story from the unauthorized uh, biography of Ted Turner. And in the unauthorized biography of Ted Turner, there's a scene where Ted Turner, uh, CNN uh, magnet, is heard yelling in his office, Damn it, Dad! Isn't that enough for you now? And of course, everyone who can hear his voice from the office knows the truth, which is Turner's father had passed away years before. But there was something about not being valued and accepted that it imprisoned him. And looking for some way out and finding none, he went along the route of success and trying to cover with mega success. Sometimes that sort of fear of not being valued or accepted or loved as we are creeps in. Maybe it doesn't happen with our family. Maybe it happens with everybody else. And sometimes out of fear, we begin to live our lives to try to make ourselves acceptable to other people, to somehow fit in with people. And it doesn't really matter how well we know these people or how well they know us. We, we seem to want their approval. And we engage in what some uh, counselors call approval addiction uh, behavior. And we try to fit in with them. And, and uh, if we're lucky, it may work on occasion. And maybe someone does like us. And maybe we do fit in. But it's a game that even when you win, you lose. Because even if you impress this group of people, there's always another group out there to impress. And it's a little bit like being moved up to the first class on the Titanic. The ride may seem nicer for a while, but in the end, it's still going down. And when we live our lives to try to please others, eventually it does catch up with us. And that fear of rejection sinks us just as surely as it has imprisoned us in all those years. But I've also watched in my own life another imprisonment, and that is sometimes I feel like that I'm imprisoned by my past. And maybe you've felt imprisoned by your past. The things in the past that if you could change, you would, but you can't. Things that you should have done, but you didn't do them. Things that you wish you hadn't done, but you did do them. The Bible has a word for this, and that word, I believe, is sin. Sin talks about what happens when we fail to do what we're supposed to do, and we do the wrong thing or we fail to do the right thing. And the word sin means, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible concept, a separation. And so a big gulf comes into our life when we make a mistake and fail in some way. You can imagine it like this. We're over on this side of the rail, and it's as if God and other people are over on the other side, and there's this huge gulf in between, and we can't seem to find a way to bridge it. We have a problem. And Adam and Eve, that problem ends up with Adam and Eve turn against God. Then they turn on each other, and then eventually their children will turn on each other. This sort of separation from failures in the past continues to plague not only our present, but can, will plague our future as well. And we desperately look for and need some way out. I think people, whether they believe in the Bible or not, whether they've ever used the term sin or not, I think they know that there are problems. This is how I know, because your average borders and your average Barnes & Noble adds 2,000 titles of self-help a year. 2,000 new books to tell us how to deal with our problems. I know that whether we call it sin or not, we know we have a problem. Look at Oprah's ratings. 
people know there's a problem and they're looking for something, anything. They need some way out. Well, the good news, the good news is there is a way out. There is a way out. I remember the very first wedding that I did. I was uh, just out of seminary. I was coming to my first church, the Methodist church, and, and we'd move on a Thursday, and your first Sunday would be the following Sunday. So it's Thursday. I, I, I move in, and Friday I just go up to the office to see uh, what's lined up for me, and the volunteer secretary says, oh, by the way, you have a wedding tonight. I do, I said. I haven't met the bride and groom. They said, we know that, but the bride came and asked us last week if you would do it. And we said, well, sure, he's a Methodist preacher. He'll marry anybody. So we signed you up. So out of my fear of rejection, I went ahead and showed up at that house, 6 o'clock on that Friday evening. I met the bride at the door. Rather, she met me. She was looking for me, and she said, there's a problem. She said, the groom will not leave the back bedroom. So... I said, well, let me go visit with him. So I went back and and started to visit with the groom. It turned out he was having second thoughts. Well, actually, he was having third and fourth thoughts, and he thought this thing pretty well through, and he wasn't going to do it. He was 19. She was 31 with two children from a previous marriage. And he was thinking, I don't think I want to do this. I'm not ready for all that this involves. And so I said to him, okay. You don't have to. He said, really? I said, yeah. You don't have to. Well, he left there in freedom. And I stayed and the bride was not very happy. But it taught me a valuable lesson that when we feel there's not a way out and we feel that we're trapped, we can't see the way out even when it is in front of us. Friends, I have to tell you, experience tells me that there is a way out of fear of death. There's a way out of fear of rejection. There's a way out from the sin of our past and the guilt from that sin that weighs us down. And i got to tell you this honestly, between all of us here today, that way is not the church. That way is not the church. You, you've probably heard the saying that being in the church no, uh, no more makes you a Christian than eating at McDonald's makes you a hamburger. There's more. And that more is a person. That more is a person. And his name is Jesus. And this person made a way through death. So that death is not just an ending and and a difficult ending. But that death is a beginning of so much more. And this person made a way through rejection. So that as Audrey said with the the children, it's not that we're loved in spite of our sin, but we're even loved in the midst of our sin. Made a way through sin and made a way through the rejection that we're accepted and valued just as we are. That we don't have to pay the price over and over for mistakes that we made. Somebody else paid it for us. You've probably heard that old story. Little girl's on a train ride through the mountains with her grandfather. She'd never been on a train ride before, much less train ride through the mountains. And when they would come up to a mountain and she would see the train heading for that, she would in great fear bury her head into her grandfather's lap and then suddenly find that because of a tunnel they went through the mountain. And they got to another mountain and again in great fear she buried her head in her grandfather's lap and they got through it again. This happened another time and finally her eyes brightened. 
And she looked at her grandfather and she said, Grandfather, somebody must have gone ahead of us and made a way for us. And that's the truth. Jesus is that way and he went that way to pave the way for us, a way that leads to freedom. So the question is, well, how, how can I be saved? How can I find that freedom? Believe on the Lord Jesus, says Paul. Now, the problem is Westerners like us here in North America, we here believe and we think, get the right ideas. Get the right stuff here. Get the facts right. And then things will flow from us. But Easterners hear that belief is a matter of, of the heart, of trust. And commitment. It's not just believing the right things about Jesus, but committing your life because of what you believe to Him that He will take you. Believe is to trust with all that you are and all that you have that there is a way out and that way leads to freedom. The difference might between belief and trust might be uh, best illustrated, or I think a good way to illustrate it is through the old story. I think it's more than 100 years old. But a guy is trying to drum up business for the circus. So he gets a high wire because he's a, a high wire artist, and it's strung from one side of Niagara Falls to the other. And he starts walking across Niagara Falls on this high wire. And his crowd starts to build to watch he does his next trick. He gets a wheelbarrow and pushes it across one side, pushes it back to the other where people are gathered, and he says to them, how many of you think I can take somebody in this wheelbarrow across to the other side? And they go, yes, we think so. And so he looks at him and said, okay, which one of you wants to get in? I believe he can make a way and do these things. But with the heart, you commit and trust, and you get in and let him do it few suggestions if you've not gotten in the first is this get familiar watch him take it across several times see that he's never dropped anyone do that read one of the gospels mark is probably the shortest read the story of jesus watch him go across watch him do this watch the lives of his followers talk to them about what he has taken them through and then for the next several weeks Seven weeks after the sermon, if you've got questions about the sermon, you want to explore more, I'm going to be in the garden chapel after the benediction, and I'll be glad to listen and, and talk more with you about it. And when that point comes where you're willing to get in, after a service someday, let the prayer minister, or Stephen minister, or one of the pastors know so we can celebrate that with you. Because there is a way out, and that way is freedom but there's so much more to this Jesus life than that. And Donna will be telling you about that next Sunday.